Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! It's Giving Tuesday, a day to support nonprofits. Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be triple matched. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! There is understandable fear in communities across the country. Even as we speak, the ATF and the FBI are investigating the tragic shooting of three men of Palestinian descent in Vermont. That investigation, including whether this is a hate crime, is ongoing. Three Palestinian college students were shot Saturday night in Burlington, Vermont as they headed to eat dinner at the home of one of their grandmothers. The FBI is now investigating the shooting as a possible hate crime. We'll speak to Joyce Ajluni, the former head of the Ramullah Friends School in the occupied West Bank, where all three students went to school. She's now the general secretary of the AFSC, American Friends Service Committee. Then we speak to prize-winning investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill about Israel's propaganda war over Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Israel's propaganda campaign about the Al-Shifa Hospital being this important Hamas pentagon, basically underground, was a lethal set of lies that was entirely backed up by the president of the United States and his administration. Plus, we remember the life and legacy of Pablo Yoruba Guzman, who co-founded the New York chapter of the Young Lords and later became a pioneering journalist here in New York. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel and Hamas have agreed to pause fighting for an additional 48 hours after mediators secured a deal for both sides to release more captives. On Monday, the Red Cross said it facilitated the release and transfer of 11 Israeli hostages held in Gaza. Their release came as Israel freed three Palestinian women and 30 children from Israeli prisons. It was the fourth exchange since the Gaza truce came into effect last week. Israeli attacks on Gaza since October 7th have killed about 15,000 people, more than 6,000 of them children. The World Health Organization warns more Palestinians could soon die of preventable diseases than of Israel's bombardment unless Gaza's health system is rapidly repaired. On Monday, the British-Palestinian surgeon, Dr. Hassan Abusita, spoke about his experiences in Gaza hospitals. One of the most horrific scenes that I witnessed in Shifa Hospital was when after the air raid and the, the, the dead and the wounded were brought in, members of the Shifa medical staff and nursing staff would be running frantically in the emergency department, looking at the faces of the wounded and the dead to see whether their relatives had been uh, amongst the wounded, and in many cases their children had been amongst the dead and the wounded. 
Billionaire Elon Musk has met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. On Monday, Musk joined the Israeli leader on a tour of Kfar kibbutz, which was attacked by Hamas on October 7th. After the tour, Musk said his SpaceX company had agreed in principle to allow aid organizations in Gaza to access the Starlink Internet satellite service, but only with Israeli approval. Aid groups spent weeks pleading for help restoring communications after Israel's siege repeatedly triggered Internet and cell phone blackouts. That contrasts with February of 2022, when Musk rushed Starlink terminals into Ukraine just days after Russia's invasion. Elon Musk's trip to Israel comes amidst an exodus of advertisers from the social media site X, formerly Twitter, after Musk tweeted his support for a user's racist, anti-Semitic comments attacking Jewish people and promoting a far-right anti-immigrant conspiracy theory. In Vermont, a 48-year-old man accused of shooting three Palestinian college students pleaded not guilty Monday to three counts of attempted second-degree murder. He allegedly shot the students from his porch as they walked by. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said the FBI is investigating whether the shooting was a hate crime. Two of the students remain hospitalized. Hisham Awartini, who was shot in the spine, has reportedly lost feeling in the lower part of his body. He's a Brown University student. We'll have more on this story after headlines. Here in New York, a former senior State Department official has pleaded not guilty to hate crime and stalking charges after a viral video showed him harassing and threatening a halal food cart vendor with violent, racist, Islamophobic language. Stuart Seldowitz served as deputy director of the U.S. State Department's Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs, from 1999 to 2003. He was a national security advisor under former President Obama. In Washington, D.C., a group of state lawmakers, Palestinian rights advocates and supporters have launched a hunger strike demanding a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. On Monday, they gathered outside the White House for the five-day peaceful action. This is Rana Abdelhamid, a former candidate for Congress and Egyptian-American community organizer from Queens, New York. Over the past couple of weeks, we have seen an incredibly harmful uptick in violence impacting across all of our communities. When we normalize the deaths and murder of Palestinian people vis-a-vis -vis our foreign policy, we normalize death and violence here in the United States across all of our communities. We need to understand that violence only allows for more violence. What we need is negotiation, what we need is diplomacy, what we need is human rights and for all families to be able to be safe, to return safely, to not have to endure more bombing, more violence and more destruction. Activist and actor Cynthia Nixon, best known for her role in Sex and the City, is among those who joined the hunger strike. Nixon, a former candidate for New York governor, also spoke Monday. We are hunger striking um, as a way of amplifying that, yes, that Palestinians are being bombed and killed, but they're also being starved, and so many of them are on the brink of, of starvation. The United Nations Secretary General has once again called on nations to act to prevent a catastrophic rise in global temperatures. Antonio Guterres spoke to reporters in New York Monday ahead of the COP28 UN Climate Summit, which opens later this week in Dubai. Over the weekend, Guterres visited Antarctica to witness firsthand, quote, the deadly impact of the climate crisis. Guterres warned sea ice along Antarctica's coast is now 1.5 million square kilometers below 
average for this time of year, while southern sea ice is melting three times faster than the rate in the early 1990s. It is profoundly shocking to stand on the ice of Antarctica and hear directly from scientists how fast the ice is disappearing. This year, Antarctica sea ice hit an all-time low. That matters for us all. What happens in Antarctica doesn't stay in Antarctica. We live in an interconnected world. President Biden will not attend the World Leaders Summit at COP28 in Dubai next weekend. The White House has not officially confirmed whether Biden will make an appearance at the U.N. Climate Summit at a later date. Biden's attended the last two COP summits and just this month said climate change was, quote, the ultimate threat to humanity. COP28 is expected to be the largest summit yet, with some 70,000 delegates and world leaders and senior officials from nearly every nation in attendance. Last week, the European Parliament approved a resolution for its COP delegation to push for an end to all fossil fuel subsidies worldwide, quote, as soon as possible, and by 2025, the latest. Democracy Now! will be broadcasting live all next week from the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai. Meanwhile, the labor rights group Equidem has released a report highlighting the ongoing abuse of migrant workers in the UAE, including at Expo City in Dubai, the site of the climate summit. Workers cite extreme heat, inadequate food allowances and wage theft as some of the violations they're facing. An undercover sting operation by the Center for Climate Reporting has exposed a Saudi government plan to artificially raise global oil demand just days before the U.N. climate summit. A team posing as oil investors spoke to officials from Saudi Arabia's Oil Sustainability Program, or OSP, who admitted to targeting Africa and Asia with oil and diesel products under a program controlled by the Saudi Ministry of Energy. Their investigation aired as part of a report on Channel 4 News. An extraordinary admission from the Saudis that they're trying to artificially raise oil demand in a climate crisis. My impression is that with the issues of climate change, there's a risk of kind of declining oil demand. And so the OSP has kind of been set up to artificially stimulate demand. Uh, yes, it is one, one of the aspects that we are uh, trying to do. It's one, one of the main objectives that we are trying mm. to accomplish. Mohamed Adao, the director of climate energy think tank Power Shift Africa, said in response, quote, the Saudi government is like a drug dealer that's trying to get Africa hooked on its harmful products at a time when the rest of the world is weaning itself off dirty and polluting fossil fuels. And Saudi Arabia is getting desperate for more customers and is turning its sights on Africa, unquote. In related news, documents obtained by the Center for Climate Reporting have revealed COP28 host, the United Arab Emirates, plan to use the climate talks as an opportunity to strike oil and gas deals with 15 nations. More United Nations officials are expressing grave concern over the worsening humanitarian crisis in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The U.N. Refugee Agency and UNICEF said they're greatly alarmed by the escalating violence between armed groups and government forces in eastern Congo that's led to the displacement of millions of people. The ongoing conflict has also hindered the access of humanitarian aid. The agencies also warn of severe human rights violations, including against children, with reports of rapes, kidnappings and arbitrary killings of civilians. Many shelter sites are overcrowded with limited access to food and clean water. We don't want this life of begging. At home, we had fields, cattle, and we lived very well. 
The most important thing is to stop the war so that we can return home. This comes as the DRC is gearing up for a presidential election in December. Security in the eastern region has been a center issue for candidates who hope to unseat the Congolese president, Felix Shisekedi. Russia's opened a criminal case against award-winning Russian-American writer and journalist Masha Gessen. The Kremlin's accusing the New Yorker staff writer of spreading false information over their remarks about the massacre of Ukrainian civilians by Russian forces in the city of Bucha in March 2022. Gessen lived and worked in Russia for decades before returning to the U.S. in 2013, after the Kremlin began enforcing brutal anti-LGBTQ plus laws. The criminal charges in Russia will also limit Masha Gessen travel to countries with extradition treaties with Moscow. In related news, a Russian court has extended the pretrial detention of Wall Street Journal journalist Evan Gershkovich for another two months. The ruling was made in a closed-door hearing earlier today. He's been jailed since March on espionage charges and faces up to 20 years in prison if convicted. And Ken Squire, an American broadcasting legend, lifelong advocate of independent media and owner of WDEV, one of the oldest community radio stations in the country, died on November 15th at the age of 88. Ken Squire was the first journalist inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in recognition of his role in bringing car racing to national television as an announcer for CBS. Squire also brought Democracy Now! to Vermont when WDEV became one of the only commercial radio stations to carry it beginning in 2004. Ken Squire believed radio must serve the community and have a diversity of views so that everyone felt represented on the air. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Burlington, Vermont, where three Palestinian college students were shot on Saturday as they were walking to dinner at the home of one of the students' grandmothers who lives near the University of Vermont. Two of the men were wearing kafiyas, and they were speaking Arabic at the time of the attack. The young men have been identified as Hisham Aratani, a Brown University student, Kenan Abdelhamid of Haverford College, and Tassin Ahmad, a student at Trinity College. They were all 20 years old. They're all 20 years old and graduates of the Ramallah Friends School in the occupied West Bank. Two of the students remain hospitalized. Hisham Awartini, who was shot in the spine, has reportedly lost feeling in the lower part of his body and may never walk again. Authorities have charged a 48-year-old white man named Jason Eaton with three counts of second-degree attempted murder. He's being held without bail. He pleaded not guilty on Monday. He reportedly shot the students from his porch as they walked by. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said the FBI is investigating whether the shooting is a hate crime. The shooting comes just weeks after a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was stabbed to death near Chicago by his landlord. Tamara Tamimi, the mother of one of the students, Kenan Abdelhamid, told ABC News, quote, to us, it's decades of dehumanizing policy and rhetoric from U.S. leaders towards Palestinians and Arabs, including from the Biden administration, which has caused our children to be in the situation that they're in, unquote. 
On Monday, relatives of the men shot in Vermont joined local authorities at a news conference at Burlington City Hall. This is Rich Price, the uncle of the Brown student, Hisham Awatani. We speak only on behalf of the family because the family can't be here. Um, I want to say that these three young men are incredible. And that's not just uh, proud uncle speaking, but it's, it's true. The, they are, uh, they have their lives in front of them. I moved here 15 years ago, and uh, I never imagined that this sort of thing could happen. And my sister lives in the occupied West Bank, and people often ask me, aren't you worried about your sister? Aren't you worried about your, your nephews and your niece? And the reality is, as difficult as their life is, they are surrounded by an incredible sense of community. And tragic irony is not even the right phrase, but to have them come stay with me for Thanksgiving and have something like this happen speaks to the level of civic vitriol, uh, speaks to the level of uh, uh, hatred that exists uh, in some corners of this, of this country. It speaks to a sickness of gun violence that exists in this country. That was Rich Price, the uncle of Hisham Awatani, one of the three college students of Palestinian descent who were shot Saturday in Burlington, Vermont. And this is Kenan Hamid's uncle, Radi Tamimi. Kenan grew up in the West Bank, and we always thought that that could be more of a risk uh, in terms of his safety. And sending him here would be a you know, uh, the right decision. And we feel somehow betrayed in that decision here. And, you know, we're just trying to come to terms with everything. We're joined by two guests. In Burlington, Vermont, Wafiq Fawar is with us. He's a Palestinian refugee from Lebanon, has lived in Vermont for years. He's a member of Vermonters for Justice in Palestine. And in Bethesda, Maryland, Joyce Ajluni, is the former director of the Ramallah Friends School, the school where all three of the students shot in Vermont graduated from. She's now the general secretary of the International Quaker Social Justice Organization, American Friends Service Committee. She herself is Palestinian-American. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Wafiq, you're in Burlington. Let's begin with you. Where were you on Saturday when you got the news that three young Palestinian students, all 20 years old, best friends, visiting one of their grandmothers for Thanksgiving, were shot? I was uh, at my house uh, in Richmond. Thank you, Amy, for inviting us. I was uh, at my house. We were organizing uh, uh, many uh, activities and rallies because of what uh, is happening on Palestine and this genocide war against uh, our people over there. Uh, definitely, I was shocked, and our community here are terrified and angry. Uh, but, Amy, we should talk about what brought this atmosphere of hate, and this is a hate crime, and we should call it as is. Uh, from the federal level, uh, the actions of Biden administrations and Secretary of State Blinken and Defense Secretary that supporting Israel unconditionally, uh, 
and talking about the Palestinian victims and questioning the numbers of the Palestinian Health Ministry. This is on the federal loving. And here in Vermont, for the last two years, we have living under siege too from attacks from institutions here when we brought resolution to talk about Palestinian rights, human rights, and uh, the protection of the Palestinian people. We found attacks from administrations in UVM, University of Vermont, on Middlebury, and unfortunately from many faith-based institutions. And they called us anti-Semitic. And this atmosphere will bring to the American public that if you talk about Palestinian rights, you're going to be called terrorist. If you wear a kofia like this, you're going to be called terrorist. And this is what brought this crime. And it is hate crime. Unfortunately, our leaders here in Vermont didn't call it as is. And we should call, call it as is and use the right words. And Wafik, specifically at the press conference that was held on Monday by law enforcement, uh, what do you believe should have been said but was not? Well, it's, I mean, when uh, State Attorney uh, Sarah George mentioned it's a hateful event, but it is not hate crime. I mean, if it happened to another community, it would have been called hate crime immediately. And, and now there are a questioning of the uh, mental capacity of the attacker. When it is, uh, uh, believe me, we feel here, if, if the name of the attacker is an Arab name or a Muslim name, he will be called terrorist immediately by the media, and the media will have a field uh, uh, of describing that person. Now, the attacker is a white supremacist, and because of the atmosphere and racism against the Muslims, the Arabs, and the Palestinians here, on the state and all across the United States, we don't call it as is. At the same time, the mayor of Burlington, who opposed and he promised to reject and to veto any resolution in our uh, progressive uh, uh, city that calls for Palestinian human rights and our rights as a Palestinian American citizen and our solidarity groups to call, to use our First Amendment and to call for the right of BDS, boycott, divestment and sanction. And that happened a year and a half ago. You cannot have a double standard that attack us because we are activists for the rights of the Palestinian. At the same time, when something like this, you, you, you just bring uh, sorrow and mourning and uh, defend yourself and where you stand. You have to stand with people justice regardless. And you have to be the mayor of all the uh, citizens. And I call for the Burlington Council members to bring a stronger resolution and mainly for ceasefire now. You know, the Palestinians are dying 
and we are working to stop this genocide over there. And we have uh, our, our local leaders, they have responsibility to support our solidarity group and the people in Vermont and Burlington. I wanted to ask you, the mother of one of the uh, injured young men, Hisham Arwatani, uh, his mother, Elizabeth Price, has been trying to leave Ramallah and travel to the U.S. to see her son. Is there any news about whether she'll be able to come? Uh I, I, I don't know. I heard that she's coming. I saw a statement about that. I don't know if she uh, she's in her way already. I know a sister and uh, her husband of another victim is here. I am in contact with the stepfather of another uh, victim, and uh, he told me his health is uh, uh, improving uh, now. Uh, but we have to take uh, this crime as uh, example of what we feel and we, what we are experiencing here. We stand uh, by uh, those victims, but at the same time, I have to talk to you about uh, the, the fear and the anger of our community uh, here in Vermont, the Palestinian and the Arab Muslim community in particular, and our solidarity groups and young students who are getting attacked by UVM administrations and a uh, year and a half ago from Middlebury administration too. I want to get to that, but I want to bring Joyce Ajluni into the conversation, former director of the Ramallah School, uh, Ramallah School, Ramallah Friends School, the school where all three boys went to um, school in Ramallah. Um, she's now the general secretary of American Friends Service Committee, uh, joining us from Virginia. Uh, can you talk about where they went to school? These were three best friends, now 20 years old. I think you're muted. Terribly uh, sorry. Perfect. Um, Yes, Amy, thank you for having me. Uh, as you were um, speaking to Afiq, I received a message from Ali Awartani and Elizabeth Price. Um, they're saying they're on their way to America. Just to answer your question about uh, if they are um, planning to come, they are en route uh, traveling to And I should with, correct uh, that you're in Bethesda, Maryland. Sorry, I said Virginia. I am. No worries. That's close enough. Um, yes, the Ramallah Friends School... Um, uh, was established in 1869 by Quaker missionaries. Um, it's a phenomenal place. I'm a graduate of the school myself. Uh, my grandmother, who was a Palestinian Quaker, uh, graduated from there in the 1920s. So this is a, is, is a proud place for, for many of us. And not that it's educationally and academically superior with an IB education, kindergarten through 12th grade, but it's also the Quaker values and the foundations of, of peace and nonviolence and teaching tolerance and, and service and integrity, conflict resolution, uh, emphasizing dialogue and inquiry. Uh, that is what the school is about. And, and the track record is, is, uh, 
uh, phenomenal uh, when we look at our, our graduates and uh, what they are up to. Uh, I think graduates say that they are who they are because of the Ramallah Friends School. So it is really a phenomenal uh, place that has transformed the lives of many throughout generations. So, um, so it's um, so I know that uh, Hisham, Kinan, and Tahseen are, are proud alums, and uh, and as uh, you know, I, I think that they're getting together as um, most of us are uh, Palestinian Americans here. Um, I also want to share that three of them are Palestinian Americans, and so sometimes that's dropped from the from the the news that uh, two of them are actually American citizens, and um, and so they they are gathered they they gather together uh, to provide solace for each other and just vent sometimes, or and and it's therapy to come together, and and unfortunately they have. Uh, witnessed this horrific, horrific uh, crime uh, in, in the midst of uh, them coming together to uh, comfort each other. And I think that is uh, what has what has happened, unfortunately, this time. You um, posted on Facebook uh, their poems, Tassin's poem, as well as Hashem. I'm wondering if you could read them for us. How old were they, like in sixth grade? They were in sixth grade. I, I had the privilege of being the head of school uh, when they were in middle school. And so um, so the librarian actually ducked those up. And I will I will read Hisham's uh, poem, sixth grade Hisham, who now goes to Brown. By the way, brilliant students, all of them, accomplished, top-notch, uh, value-driven. Um, I wanted to say maybe, Amy, before I read his poem, um, that's how selfless our students are. You know, Hisham wrote to his professor at Brown, um, and I want to quote him. He said, it's important to recognize that this is part of the larger story. The serious crime did not happen in a vacuum. As much as I appreciate and love every single one of you here today, I am but one casualty in a much wider conflict. And then Hisham goes on to say to his professor that this is why when you say your wishes and light your candles today, you should mind, you, your mind should not just be focused on me as an individual, but rather a proud member of a people being oppressed. And so that is, that is, these are his words, uh, since, since his, uh, uh, his, the shooting. Um, when he was in sixth grade in 2015, he wrote, uh, that's Hisham Awartani. Hope dwells in my heart. It shines like a light in darkness. The light cannot be smothered. It cannot be drowned out by tears and the screams of the wounded. It only grows in strength. This light can outshine hate. This light can outshine injustice. It outshines segregation and apartheid. As of Greek legend, Pandora opened a box. And when she did that, all the evil escaped. But luckily, Pandora closed the jar before hope could escape. And as long as hope stayed in that jar, hope would never escape. So I ask you one thing, learn from the story, learn to never give up hope, learn to let hope give power in the darkness of times, and let the light shine. Wow. 
Hisham in sixth grade. And how yes. about Tassin? Tassin, there are two poems. I want to read one, which, which depicts where our students are coming from, that they are coming from living under a brutal occupation apartheid system that agonizes them, that traumatizes them day in and day out. Children, sixth graders. So Tahseen writes, my ears are pounding, children dying, mothers crying, authorities lying. My ears are pounding, my ears are pounding, missiles destroying, bombs exploding, bullets killing, my ears are pounding, press careless, dreams traceless, lands ownerless, my ears are pounding, kids without mothers, beds without covers, Palestine without others, my ears are pounding, my ears are pounding. There is one sound I heard, not from a breeze or a bird, the sound of darkness. My ears are pounding. My ears are pounding. I'd rather be deaf. So, I mean, that, that says a lot. That says a lot about where we are at today and the story of the Palestinian struggle, which is often depicted as um, that this, this all started on October 7th. And, and so this is 2015. And they are, you, when you read this poem, you feel like you're reading it about today, about, about our people in Gaza and what they are going through. And, and yet, this, is, uh, this was um, eight years ago. So the, the struggle uh, I, continues. I, yeah. And Joyce, I wanted to ask you, uh, Joyce, I wanted to ask you uh, if you could comment on the tragic irony that the families of the victims have said in various interviews that they thought that the U.S. would be a safer place for their children than the West Bank, and then to have this uh, terrible tragedy occur here. Yes, of course. I mean, I think that is that is the, the absolute truth. We we all, you know, I know that a large number of Palestinian students from the Ramallah Friends School attend the uh, attend U.S. colleges, and they're actually very sought after. And uh, and when when they come here. The parents know that they are keeping them away from being subjected to violence from not just the Israeli military but the Israeli settlers. I I have I have a 31 year old son there now, and I, I worry about his safety. His, the, the the settlers have been emboldened, and there's uh, violence there every day. And uh, you wonder, you know, you you send them here, and then. They, this kafia has now become a symbol, instead of our struggle, instead of uh, a symbol of our tradition, our, our, our traditional dress our, and, our, and our struggle. And it, this is now being painted and tainted as uh, a symbol of violence. And so uh, I have another son in Washington, D.C. He doesn't leave home without his kafia. I wonder. I, I worry about him too. So that 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 is where we're at right now, and I I can't but agree with uh, Wafik about the dehumanization that has been taking place. And this is this is not new. You know, Palestinians are. You know, even even in our grief, we are um, we are depicted as Palestinians dying. Right? 
while Israelis are being killed and massacred. So language really matters. And I, and I think that is what we, we have seen time and time again. You know, the 47, 47 children died on the West Bank between January and August of this year, way before this war started. And I wonder, like, who cried for them? Who mourned them? Where was the U.S. mainstream media talking about them? And so that that so so it's not just the language; it's also the framing, right? Uh, that this is this is the worst attack since the Holocaust, painting Palestinians as Jew haters, as the that this is a religious struggle rather than a people seeking freedom, seeking liberation from a settler colonial system, uh, and and remembering. You know that that Palestinians of all faiths are are in in the same struggle as well, and they have they have not been uh, offered the humanity and the dignity that that uh, that they deserve. And so I think this is all this is manifest due to uh, the continued dehumanization, not only by the media but by our government. You know, as as Wafik said, uh, that they continue to. Turn a blind eye. They're not calling for a ceasefire. They continue to embolden the Israeli uh, atrocities by sending more aid, doubling their aid, and uh, and and supporting the genocide of uh, our people. And so that is that is truly the reason why this is happening. I, I just wanted to also take the opportunity. You know, we're doing the. There's this uh, exchange of hostages and um, the. When they talk about that, they talk about uh, Israelis released uh, uh, the children. The Israeli released our children, while the Palestinians who are released are teenagers. So children versus teenagers. You know, in 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 my book, they are all hostages. You know, the 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 fact that the media is not talking about the three thousand Palestinians who have been kidnapped it basically since that October 10th and, and put in Israeli jails. And they're calling them, they're not prisoners. To them, they are bargaining chips, right, that they will use in the exchange. But to us, they are hostages, just like the hostages that are held in Gaza. And so that that is the narrative that is being talked about day in and day out. And and people who who have who have sentiments that are anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, are emboldened by, by, by all of that and take action, like, like uh, Jason Eaton, who, who, who uh, felt emboldened because uh, n- no one is portraying Palestinians as uh, human beings that deserve the dignity and, and, uh, and the respect uh, that, that uh, everyone else should be, uh, that everyone else is granted. Jason Eaton, of course, is the um, alleged shooter uh, of the three Palestinian uh, young men. I want to thank you, Joyce Ajluni, the former director of the Ramallah Friends School, where they all went to school in the occupied West Bank. Um, All three students shot in Burlington, Vermont, on Friday. Uh, Joyce is also now the 
general secretary of the American Friends Service Committee. And I want to thank Wafiq Faour, a Palestinian refugee from Lebanon, member of Vermonters for Justice in Palestine, speaking to us from Burlington. And this final note is speaking about the Vermont representatives. You have Becca Balint, who is the first Jewish Congress member to call for a ceasefire. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has not called for a ceasefire, but has called for conditions on USAID to Israel. He said, quote, while Israel has the right to go after Hamas, Netanyahu's right wing extremist government does not have the right to wage almost total warfare against the Palestinian people. Coming up, we speak to prize winning investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill about Israel's propaganda war over Al Shifa Hospital and what's underneath it. Who built what's under Shifa Hospital? Back in 20 seconds. Behind by Adnan Jubran. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Israel is continuing to detain the head of Al Shifa Hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza. Last week, the Israeli military detained Mohammed Abu Salmiya as he was evacuating patients south from Gaza City. Israel raided Al Shifa, claiming Hamas ran a command and control center under the hospital, but Israel's yet to provide any horrid evidence to back that up. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak recently spoke with CNN's Christian Amanpour. He admitted Israel built the bunkers decades ago underneath al-Shifa. It's already known for many years that they have in the bunkers that originally was built by Israeli constructors underneath Shifa was, were used as a command post uh, of the Hamas and a what kind of a, a junction of several uh, several uh, tunnels uh, part of the system. I don't know to say to what extent it is a major. It's probably not the, the only uh, kind of command post. Several others are under other uh, hospitals or in other uh, sensitive places, but it's for sure had been used by uh, by uh, Hamas even during this uh, conflict. Well, when you say it was built by Israeli engineers, did you misspeak? <laughs> No, no, somebody, you know, decades ago, we were the, running the place. So we held them. It was decades, many decades ago, probably five, de four decades ago, that we helped them to build these uh, bunkers in order to enable uh, more, more, uh, more space for the operation of the hospital within the very limited uh, size of this compound. Again, that was the former Israeli prime minister, Ehud Barak. We're joined now by Jeremy Scahill, senior reporter and correspondent, The Intercept, author of Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army and Dirty Wars, The World is a Battlefield. One of his most recent pieces for The Intercept is headlined Al-Shifa Hospital, Hamas's Tunnels and Israeli Propaganda. Uh, Jeremy's joining us from Germany. Jeremy, um, can you talk about what he just said? 
Yeah, well, first of all, Amy, the um, the Al Shifa Hospital originally going back to the years of the British Mandate um, in the 1940s, it was a British military barracks, and then it was converted into uh, a hospital. And uh, under both the Israeli and the Egyptian occupations of that area. And then in the 1980s, the Israelis began to do extensive construction on it. In fact, I was looking um, at the Israeli architecture archives that were set up. And you can go back and look at uh, from that era and two Tel Aviv uh, architects oversaw the the expansion of the Al-Shifa Hospital and by 1983, they had finished the construction of underground facilities at the hospital. Now, we should also say it's not uncommon for hospitals the world over to have underground facilities for a variety of reasons. Um, but when you're in an active war zone, it's very common. In fact, Israel um, has many underground facilities at its hospitals throughout Israel um, and has been using them um, since October 7th. Certainly, um, they're considered more secure places to hold vulnerable patients. Um, and so what we know about uh, Israel's construction is that they at least built um, an underground operating room. They built a network of tunnels. And in fact, during some of the construction, what, what the son of one of the Israeli architects who designed the underground facility said that when Israel was building these in the 1980s, they hired people from Hamas as security to guard the construction project um, so to ensure that it wouldn't get attacked. And Jeremy, could you talk also about the the uh, the thousands of, of prisoners that Israel has been holding, uh, many of them without any trial for uh, for extended years? And uh, yet the Netanyahu government uh, refers to all of them as terrorists. Yeah, I mean, Juan, I went through and this connects also to the narrative around Al-Shifa, but just to directly answer your question, Israel released a list of 300 names that it said were uh, fair game for uh, a hostage prisoner uh, handover uh, because of the truce with Hamas. And I went through all 15 pages of those names. I read uh, each of the individual dates of birth, the dates of arrest, what the nature of the charges were, if there were any charges. Some of them don't even list any uh, actual charges against them. And what I discovered is that of the 300 names, 233 uh, of these prisoners, most of them are teenage boys. Some are te- uh, there's a teenage girl who's 15 years old. Um, the 233 of 300 uh, have not been convicted of anything. They haven't been sentenced uh, for anything. And Israel is uh, the only country in the so-called developed world uh, that uh, tries children in military courts. And and so you know the Israeli narrative is that these are all hardened terrorists because Palestinians are not allowed to have any context. Palestinians are, are, are not treated as full human beings. So when a child, uh, maybe his brother was killed by the Israeli forces, maybe his mother was killed by the Israeli forces, throws a rock at a, at a soldier, uh, their houses are often then raided at night, they're snatched, they're taken uh, to interrogation without the presence of a parent or a lawyer, and then they're pressured into pleading guilty under threat of spending years in a military judicial process. Now, I say this relates to al-Shifa um, because... Uh, the colonial narrative always, and you can look at the British with the IRA, you can look at the position against Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress, is that those who are victims of the occupation have no rights to legitimate struggle. And so the, the, the prisoners that Israel are holding overwhelmingly are people that are accused of committing political acts of violence. And that context also bleeds into Israel's narrative about Al-Shifa. Al-Shifa is not really a hospital. Al-Shifa, look, I don't know if you guys have the video, but if you do, you should play it. Israel puts out a video to justify 
the siege of Al-Shifa Hospital, the most important hospital in Gaza, where you had dozens of children uh, that needed incubators. Israel had knocked out the power supply. You had the most vulnerable uh, uh, patients there. They put out a video, the Israeli uh, Defense Forces, that is this high-tech, three-dimensional rendering, they said, of, of an underground, what, what I just call a Hamas Pentagon. And they imply that this is where, this is the central facility where Hamas is planning its terror operations. Um, when Israel finally then lays full siege to it, with the backing of the Biden administration and Biden himself, they co-signed all of that. They said that hostages had been held under the hospital. They said that it was used as a command and control center. When Israel finally starts to access the hospital, they take embedded journalists on these propaganda tours. And what they found was essentially nothing of any major significance. They they go in and they say, oh, look, we found these rifles um, behind an MRI machine, which is ridiculous for anyone who knows that the technology of an MRI machine and the magnetism of it. Um, they, 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 they're all conveniently placed, neatly arranged. There's a, a one Hamas vest with a Hamas logo on it. So that gets ridiculed and, and skepticism is expressed even by corporate media outlets that historically print Israel's propaganda as just established fact. So then they, they finally gain access to a tunnel in the area. Um, they go down there and they say, oh, this, this tunnel is X number of meters long, and there's a blast-proof door that has a hole so that the Hamas terrorists can fire at us. Um, so we need to take some time before we blow it open. And on the other side is going to be this command and control center. So finally then, last week, they blow the thing open. They go in there, and what do they find? They find um, three rooms, basically. One looks like a kind of very old school 1980s style exam room from a hospital. There's a sink somewhere in there. There's two toilets. And then you have this utter clown from the IDF who has been made a fool of himself by doing these tours. It's like Geraldo Rivera looking for Al Capone's vault. He's running around saying, aha, there's electricity in here. This is a Hamas command center. Aha, they had an air conditioner in here. You know, the pipes are rusty. Many of the electrical wires aren't even connected. Now, I don't know for a fact that Hamas guys weren't under there. It wouldn't shock me if at some point Hamas did have people under there. But we were told this was like a Hamas Pentagon and that it was so dangerous that it justified laying siege to a hospital filled with the most vulnerable people. This is this is uh, this is akin to sort of the, the George H.W. Bush administration lies about the Iraqis uh, pulling babies from incubators. It's an utter lie that was co-signed and promoted by President Joe Biden and his, his administration. And they should be made to answer for this because it wasn't just al-Shifa. They did it at the Indonesia hospital. They did it at other hospitals. Of course, Hamas has networks of tunnels underneath Gaza, 150 to 300 kilometers by some estimates. Israel is waging a targeted assassination campaign against them, and they live in a confined area waging a guerrilla war. That's not news, but Israel tried to rebrand something that anyone who's followed this already knows and try to make it seem like it's a smoking gun. And in fact, it was a lethal lie. Jeremy Scalho, I want to thank you for being with us, senior reporter correspondent at The Intercept. We'll link to your pieces in Al-Shifa and Palestinian prisoners at democracynow.org. Coming up, we remember the life and legacy of Pablo Yoruba Guzman, who co-founded the New York chapter of the Young Lords back in 20 seconds.
Alante by Hooray for the Riffraff. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show remembering the life and legacy of Pablo Yoruba Guzman, visionary former Minister of Information of the Young Lords, longtime print and television reporter who's died of a heart attack. In 1969, Guzman co-founded the New York chapter of the predominantly Puerto Rican radical group, the Young Lords, which fought against police brutality, racism, U.S. imperialism and militarism. The Young Lords also provided health care child care and breakfast to impoverished people, most of them black and Latino. In this clip from December 1969, Pablo Guzman speaks after the Young Lords took over the first Spanish United Methodist Church in East Harlem, which became known as the People's Church. And it ain't just y'all in this church, you know, it ain't just East Harlem. Remember, we relate to an international struggle. So it may sound, may sound ridiculous, but this all links up to what's happening from Vietnam to Puerto Rico to Watts. Don't ever forget that. That without you here, see, our children have had it. What you do here today, and what you do after you leave this church, no matter what happens, whether we get busted, or whether we have to walk out, either way, it's still a victory. Whatever happens on after that is going to be important for the fate of the world. Because we're in the belly of the monster. People all over waiting for us to take care of business. And I don't like people to be too optimistic because I'm kind of a pessimist, you know. But remember that no matter what happens, one way or the other, we have won. We have a victory here today. They can never take that away from us. Everybody here, go out and you go out proud no matter what happens. But this church is ours. This is a people's church. That's Pablo Yoruba Guzman speaking in 1969. In addition to being joined by Juan, who co-founded the New York chapter of the Young Lords with Yoruba, we're joined by Johanny Fernandez, author of the award-winning book, The Young Lords, A Radical History. Juan, why don't you introduce this? Well, Amy, I, I think one of the things that the people underestimate, uh, that uh, Pablo, as our minister of information, grasped from the start— uh, the critical importance for any people's movement of controlling its own narrative, not allowing it to be determined or defined by others. Uh, it was he, for example, who launched the Palante radio program on WBAI uh, back in uh, 1970 and who launched uh, and initially supervised as the editor of the Palante newspaper. Uh, and as an 18-year-old, he had already studied one of the seminal figures of the 20th century media studies, uh, Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan, and had absorbed uh, McLuhan's theory that all mass media have historically functioned as extensions of the human brain, but that each medium, print, radio, television, does so in a distinct way has its own language and message and seeks to directly provoke our emotions. Uh, Pablo insisted that in order to control our narrative, um, we had to tailor our messages to each uh, medium and also to use humor and bravado. He was an extremely funny guy, and he basically uh, captivated the corporate media in many ways. And uh, thanks to his approach, the, the Lords received perhaps the most sympathetic press coverage of any 1960s revolutionary organization. Pablo Guzman was, in short, the first great public relations expert of the U.S. Latino community. 
And Johanna Fernandez, if you can talk about the significance of he was known then as Yoruba, Pablo Guzman, to the entire New York community for the decades. Uh, he was a on-the-street journalist. Juan called him the best street journalist there was in New York, working for all the various networks from CBS to NBC to WNET. Yeah, and he received two Emmys. Um, he was a street reporter. Uh, and he was bold, and he got his boldness from his experience in The Young Lords, um, that experience around the media theorizing uh, what it meant to be an activist, to engage in creative disruption, um, and how to use the media to speak to a larger audience, right? Something that, that um, activists around the crisis in Gaza are trying to do today. But I think that Pablo... Um, got his uh, his pizzazz, his humor um, from his heritage. His grandfather, Mario Palomino, was in Cuba when he enrolled and applied to the Tuskegee Institute, the first um, uh, institution of higher education for African-Americans uh, in Alabama and got in and graduated after four years. So he was, um, a man of color, a black Cuban, uh, who instilled in his, in, in Pablo's father, a sense of pride in being black and Latino, black and Cuban. Pablo's father took him to hear, uh, Malcolm X speak on 125th Street when he was 12 years old. Um, one thing about Pablo was that he was one of the first Afro-Latino um, people in the media. Before the Young Lords emerged, when you thought about Puerto Ricans in the media or in the public sphere, uh, it was light-skinned Puerto Ricans. And so Pablo brought to the Young Lords um, a theorization of race in Latin America, um, and he talked about the influence of colonialism on the psyche of the colonized and the oppressed Latinos who tend to deny their blackness. And part of what the Young Lords did through Pablo uh, Guzman and others uh, was to build common cause with um, black Americans and accept and be proud of their own blackness. This is a spectacular figure who went to China with a delegation of 70 radicals in 1971. Pablo Guzman, that is. He was one of um, the people present at the formal announcement of the Rainbow Coalition initiated by Black Panther Fred Hampton in Chicago. Uh, and we can go on and on. There really is no time to talk about how significantly important he was as an actor in the history of the 60s. Juan, you have 30 seconds to wrap up, and then we're going to do this interview in Spanish after the show. Well, he was just a, 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 a unique figure in New York City history, and the Latino and the Puerto Rican community, we're all going to miss him, and our condolences to his wife, Debbie, his uh, children, and to his mother, Sally, who was always uh, a big supporter uh, and friend uh, of the Young Lords. Well, um, Juan 
And Johanna, our condolences and to the whole community about the um, the death of Pablo Guzman, Pablo Yoruba Guzman. Johanna Fernandez, associate professor of history at the City University of New York's Baruch College, also author of the award-winning book, The Young Lords of Radical History. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for Democracy Now!